I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and thanks for joining me for another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. It's a miracle that my guest is even on the podcast this week and able to tell his story. Having grown up in a tough and abusive family environment, Marvin Herbert was resorting to crime at the age of just 13 years old. Andy went on to spend more than 15 years in the UK's toughest prisons for over 76 offences. His violent past saw him get stabbed 23 times and shot five times, even losing his eyeball. He's now reformed and has turned his attention to making sure that people don't follow a similar path to him. He's a mentor to kids and has set up a foundation to turn around the lives of young offenders. The stories in this episode are extremely violent and graphic, but offer a rare insight into the UK crime culture and what's been done to turn the tide. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, joining me today is a man who spent 15 years in prison. He's been labelled a Premier League criminal. The Yardie Hitman, Mr. Big, Marvin Herbert. Thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you very it. much for spending the time and visiting me. How badly would this interview have to go for you to organise someone to break my legs? No, unfortunately <laughs> enough, that, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, I've took a, a path in life, a stake in life where I've got to give more than take and basically as help as many people as possible, irrespective of how I feel. And the one sort of rule that I have is I can't physically hurt anybody anymore. And that's just the way I am now. So I can get abused, I can be attacked. I'll defend myself if I'm attacked, obviously, but I can't resort to violence in any way, shape or form. No longer. And I haven't done for five whole years. Let's <laughs> let's look at that incident that, that put a cap on your criminal career. Okay, well, basically... I used to be involved with organisations that transported drugs all around Europe and into England and most of the rest of the planet. Um, we used to communicate on um, encrypted secret devices. And basically, you what got... Ki- what kind of secret devices? Like tel- PGPs. They're called... They're, the new ones was Encros. But Are they just like burner phones or...? No, they're... they're devices where the police can't listen, watch, follow. What led us to that point of me sort of turning my back on crime was I got involved in crime to help people more than anything. And although it might sound a little bit ironic, um, I stole a lot of money for my own benefit and gratification. But what I'd done with my money, I invested it into drugs and other sort of uh, products. Buying and selling drugs. I never profited from the sale of the drugs. I used the drugs and other products as a banking structure because up until 2015, I physically wasn't allowed a bank account. So I couldn't open bank accounts. So my money was never secure. And obviously if your turnover's a lot of money and you're handling a lot of money and you've got a lot of money around you. What sort of turnover? The average turnover was around 109 million pound a year. And that's not even exaggerating. That's just like half a ton of cannabis, 
50 kilos of um, what they call hash, 500 kilos of hash, 50 kilos of the super skunk, and 20 to 30 kilos of cocaine a week. Wow. So doing that every week uh, gives you a turnover around, around approximately 109 million pounds a year. And it got done with a way of mouth. So if you had a, a, a network that needed a certain product and then I had the product, then you'd say to me, have you got anyone? I'd say, yeah, of course, I've got a load of kids. in." But you don't really meet the kids. You meet the kids' sort of olders. So the kids were the ones selling it? Selling it, yeah. yeah. Like, so the ones with the network are the ones on the road running about. You know what I mean? The whippersnappers. There was a, a group of young kids that was working for a part of my network. And then one of them fell behind with um, a certain amount of money. And because the profits what they were making and spending, et into my money. So once I et into my money, I used to get very angry and this kid et into my money. And basically I really wanted, I wanted to get him hurt and the, the road just punishes people with violence. So to send a message that you can't mess about usually ends up with shootings. So this guy, I had to find out where he was and who he was um, to get him hurt. And I found out, unfortunately, it was my son's best friend or one of my son's best friends. And it was at that stage that I thought, what the fuck am I doing? I don't want to be the man shooting and hurting young kids and sending kids to prison. I don't want to do it because I looked at the situation because it was so tangibly close to me. I sort of realised that it's other people's kids and other people's nephews and other people's sons that are going to prison. And I'm the product of that. I'm the cause of that. So it was that was the eureka moment for me. So then... At that stage in my life, I started working with a couple of organisations, talking to the kids about making the right choices. And then I sort of fell into mentoring. And then the skills that I had to network, I just opened door after door after door. And then I've, I started a football academy. I started a recording studio, a record label, um, and an intervention school. So let's, let's go right back to the start now. Your background and how you got to get into organised crime. Tell me about your father. Oh, well, my dad was a larger-than-life character. He was someone that I loved to hate growing up as a kid. You know, um, I loved him because of the attention that he got. I loved him because of the sort of respect that people showed him. I loved him for the popularity that he just sort of had around him, you know. So anywhere my dad went, he sort of lifted the environments he walked into or... He was my, my, my god at that early ages of my life. Although we had a sort of traumatic upbringing with violence, I always loved my dad. I always wanted to be like my dad, you know. And then as we got older, around eight, nine, ten years of age, the psychological programming I got from my mum about my dad didn't, my dad didn't love me, my dad didn't care about me, and your mum said that. Yeah, my dad always loved his whores. He don't love you. He don't love his sisters. And the, the reason why I become emotional is because he did love me. And I know he loved me because at his funeral, when he died, there were so many people there that I'd never met that actually come and spoke to me about my dad. And it's I regret not building a relationship with him and not listening to him growing up. What I realised when I got older was that he was just trying to prevent me being the worst version of him. You know, like, you met my daughter. Yeah, lovely. I don't want my daughters to be nothing like me. So I actually realised that that's what my dad wanted. And because I was so adamant and stubborn and 
defiant, he had to be me. I don't blame myself. I just sort of accept it is what it is. And I just sort of wish that I'd listened to him a lot more than I did. But because I believed everything my mum said about him, it gave me the the passion and the ambition and the drive to actually succeed better than he was like, my kids are never going to starve. My kids are never going to go without because my mum was addicted to drugs and substances. And I know that when my dad wasn't around, there weren't any food. Like, like, mm. And I remember the days when I'd open the fridge and I'd open the cupboard and just wish there was going to be food there. And There'd be days my mum wouldn't be around the house for three, four days and would be left on her own. Like under the age of 11, there's four of us. I was nine, my brother was 10, my sister was 11, another younger sister. And we'd be left to fend for our own. Where did that start to morph into criminal activity? At what age was it and, and how did, what did that look like? Basically, around about nine, 10 years of age, um, my dad used to use my mum's house to store products and money. Every now and then, once a week or once a month, my dad would turn up with a few of his friends and they'd, they'd basically wrap money and put money into cigarette boxes and weigh it and then reseal them and then repack the 200. So there was transporting money back through the cigarettes in cigarette boxes. And basically how it started for me was I used to nick bags of the, the product off my dad and then give it to the older kids in the estate that used to smoke it. And I used to take them back and say, how much do you want to give me for this? And, and like give them handfuls. And they'd be like, we'll give you 20 quid. We'll give you 50 quid. Like I'd sell like maybe a pound of weed for 50 quid, <laughs> thinking I'm being sensible. And then that went on for a couple of years. And basically I'd use that money. I'd hide that money. And then when my dad wasn't around and there was no money in the house, then I'd make out to my mum. I was stealing money. I was doing things, but I'm giving my mum that money little bit by little bit to feed us and cook food. And then basically... I was about 11 or 12, the end of the first year in secondary school, and we moved to Kilburn. I was hanging around with a load of graffiti artists. We used to smoke weed, so we used to chip in to buy a bit of weed. So they used to go to this gaff, and one day they've gone to this gaff to buy, I think it was ten pound, a £10 drawer, and they've come back with two little thin strips, and I was like, what the fuck is that? And they said, that's what we got for a tenner. But I'm thinking, well, hold on. I can get carrier bags of this stuff. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and that's a tenner. Wow. I've been giving that shit away for free. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I can get this. Like, what do you mean? I can get this. Where from? Don't worry about where from. So then basically I started nicking it off my dad and then turning up with my friends and then cutting it all up into drawers and then giving it to my friends to sell. And then um, from there, we realised that the delivery vans, the delivering parcels, all like all the old lot, I see them with all their cashmere coats, all the all the gear, and I'm like, "What do you lot do? What do you lot do? We're on the jump up, son. A bit beyond your league." I was like, "What do you mean? Uh, look, you're above your pay grade, son. You're not ready for this." Because I was young and little, no one thought we would game, which was because I could always fight because I was grown up in a violent house. Yeah. I got used to getting beaten by a six foot four, like Afro Caribbean man that used to actually punch me and kick me, and because I hated him believing us skin what I believed at the time, I would never allow him to hurt me. So I was very resilient to his power and I wouldn't cry. Every time I used to beat my mum up, I used to attack him. So I'm saying to like, when my brothers and sisters would cower away a little bit, I'd, I'd, I'd get involved. And, no, it's my mum, leave her alone. Mm. And then I'd get beaten for admitting my mum. So 
when we started doing the jump ups, it was what are jump ups? It's like when there were delivery guys delivering parcels or products to a shop would break into the, the van as they go into the shop to make delivery then we'll break into the van with a crowbar and then one day I just sort of said to my mate why are we doing this and he said what do you mean I said well why don't we just knock the geezer out like, and he said what do you mean I said watch when he comes out so he's come out and I walked up to him and said mate have you got the time please mate and he's going what hit him hit him knocked him out and then we've got him into the back of the van and then we drove the van around the corner and just emptied the whole van do you know what I mean and then there was just something that Escalated from there, and then I got arrested for a few bits and pieces. End up going to prison, and then yeah. So how like when you when you got to prison, you were a violent little fellow, weren't you? Like you got well, gone some scraps with the it was, prison guards and all. Yeah, sorts. everybody, man. It was just everybody. It was just yeah. So the prison guards. So when I got to prison, it was more of a thing where where I'd grown up, and I was mixed race. I weren't accepted by the blacks, and I weren't accepted by the whites totally. So I always found that violence was my in with everybody and my gameness. So if anyone said, oh, we want to do this, I'll do that. So I'll be the first to do anything. And because I was boxing from the age of nine and I was really good at boxing. So because I weren't scared of getting hit because of my dad, kids couldn't hurt me because mm. I could take my dad's punches. So a lot of people don't realise why I was so tough, but it was because I was so resilient for my dad's violence that it just, people, kids my age never hurt me. So... When I got to prison, it was I wanted to be the daddy. And that was it. So I turned up, I got to the prison for the first time. So daddy's the big dog. Yeah, I got to the prison for the first time. And anybody that said anything in the wrong way, it was just off. So I was just fighting everybody. And it was, I was always very confrontational. Who are you talking to, you mug? Who are you talking to? What, what company? And fighting with everyone. And because I could fight, and it just seemed like I couldn't get hurt. So when someone's hurt, punching you, punching you, punching you, and you're saying, come on, come on. They just sort of lose a little bit of confidence. Mm. And I made a, a decent reputation for myself throughout the juveniles. And then by the age of 15, 16. Juvenile prisons. Yeah. So I think it was 16, 17, I went to the first man's prison. And then when I turned up in there, it was exactly the same. Talk me through the incident where you got into a big scrap with the guards. It was every prison, every prison. But the biggest one I ever got into was... Um, Fast forward to 2002, and it was um, in Belmarsh High Security Prison. We've been arrested for a load of shootings, a, ma a machine gun, a silencer. You've been doing shoot-ups with a machine gun? Well, they said we was a Yardie hit team on a mission to kill. Is this where the Yardie hit man comes from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they said, obviously, anyone black at them stages, they said he was a Yardie. But my dad's from Barbados, so there was... It was alleged we was involved in 19 murders. Um, and basically we was arrested with a machine gun, with a silencer, subsonic bullets, body armour, gloves, Nick vehicle, Nick motorbike. And we was nicked in a very small space with all this equipment found. Pretty know. pretty decent evidence from the cops, isn't it? Yeah, it usually is when you get fitted up though. Usually is. So how did you get fitted up? Because it wasn't my gun. I never committed 19 murders. And because they couldn't catch us robbing security vans and committing other serious crimes, they just wanted to get us off the road by any means necessary. And this was one way of doing it. And that became prevalent at the end of the case when they've turned up, because they said we're a, 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 a Yardie hit team that's so professional, so forensically aware that our firearms was brand new, never even been fired, and that we were so in front of the police on everything 
coming to counter space, they never found one fingerprint, one DNA, no nothing to do with any of the gear. And they built such a case to make us look so professional that the jury would have believed them. And then they produced the firearms. And when they come into court with the Mac 10, they give us, I said, is this the Mac 10? I can have a look at it. So they give me the Mac 10 and it looked about 50 years old. So I just sort of said to the judge, I'm no gun expert, but I got the paperwork out. I said, your, your forensic examiner said our gun was brand new. This gun doesn't look brand new to me. So the judges had a look at it. Wow, let the jury see that. The jury's seen it. And then we got found not guilty Done. within two minutes. Yeah. And then when we got the not guilty, we got found guilty by association to the firearm. And I got five and a half years for it. We were arrested for that. Um, one day we've come back from court and we're in the cell and it's dinner time, but it's half seven. You get fed at five o'clock or something like that, three, four, five o'clock, and it's like half seven, quarter to eight. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? So I'm pressing my bell, pressing my bell, pressing my bell. And the screws come to the cell. I said, what the fuck's going on? I said, oh, sorry, Herbert, we're feeding the nonces. The nonces, all the sex offenders, right? So I was like, what? What, where in, what, what? A lot of profanity, swearing, screaming, shouting, what the fuck you playing at? What, what, what? Booting the door, booting the door, booting the door. And I remember come out to get fed, like a call to eight at night. I walked down to the, the, the senior officers on the landing with a couple of officers around him and a couple of officers on the stairs. And I walked up to him, I said, what the fuck you playing at? How the fuck you feeding us after the nonces? He said, you're no better than the nonces. Now get your dinner. I said, who are you fucking talking to? And with that, he tried to headbutt me. But as he tried to head me, obviously I'm boxing, so I'm, my sort of perception of movement is, and reactions are really good. So as he tried to headbutt me, I've sort of pulled my head back and uppercutted him, hooked him, headbutted him back. And with that, I've seen the guard next to him go to get his whistle because they blow these whistles and then it screams up. So as he's got to blow his whistle, I've hit him, grabbed him, headbutted him. And then there's another officer just over the back. So I've run over to him, done him a flying kick, started punching him down the stairs. The, um, the two other officers grabbed my two co-defendants and took them to the ground. And then one officer come running down the stairs. So I've gone and done him. I can't remember what I've done to him. I think I punched him in the gut and headbutted him. And then with that, the inmate who was serving the dinner jumped over the hot plate and pressed the alarm. So all the other screws come. And then all the other screws come and then they, over, 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 they overpower you because there's about 30 to 40 officers. They overpowered us, bent us up. We had another little fight on the way to the block. Beat you up? Did they beat? Is it beating you up? Yeah, yeah, just giving you digs and all that. So basically, when they do things like that, I'll just let them know you can't hurt me. So I'll just, if you look at my eye there, you can see there and there. Where right. it, I'll just headbutt the floor. So you can't hurt me, you fucking idiots. Who the fuck you think you're trying to hurt? Smash, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Come on, kill me, you mugs. Break my arm. Do what you're doing, you fucking idiots. You can't hurt me. Because anything to do with violence to me just reminded me of my dad. So I just pictured my dad and that hatred used to just fire up that engine inside and I never felt pain. Because we're nicked for so many murders and so many shootings. They've let me out in my cell, but when I opened my cell, I was on a 10-man unlock, which means 10 officers in riot gear, an SO, a, a senior officer, a principal officer, and a governor has to be present to open your door. So now I've got a phone call and a shower. So I've come out for my phone call, and I've got on the phone, and there was a little governor, I can't remember his name, but it was a little governor, bald head, and he's standing there all smug. So I've come out, got on the phone, pressed the phone, I said, sweetheart, can you do me a favour? Yeah, can you tell the boys, yeah, that I want every five foot five, five foot six, bald-headed cunt coming out of this gaff, getting shot in the face. And then she's just, and then they've got panic, panic, panicked. 
and bang me up, bang me up, bang me up. And then it kicks off a little bit. I've been banged up. And then basically about an hour later, they've come down to my cell and said, oh, we want a word. I said, word for what? I said, look, because up until that point, I'm trying to exercise with my co-defendants on the yard and they won't let us congregate together because of what happened on the wing. So I'm screaming up every day. I want to be with my partner. I want to be with my co-defendants. Why are you not letting us go on the exercise together? So no, we're not doing it. So this day they've come out and said, look, the governor wants to speak to you with you and your two co-defendants. Um, will you be okay? I said, if I'm with my co-defendants, you ain't got a problem. So we've gone, been let out, gone into a room. And the, the, the governor said to me, look, I'm not doing this because of anything, but you're no good for this prison, Herbert. And we want to send you to Pentonville. Now, when I've heard Pentonville, Pentonville is a lower category prison. So I thought, Pentonville, it's on my... I lived in North London. I lived in Camden Town and Pentonville's on um, Caledonian Road, which is not even a mile away from my ass. So drugs, drink, money, everything but sex I got in Pentonville. So I went, you're sending me Pentonville? I'm bearing in mind, I'm in the highest security prison in London, in Belmarsh mm. at that stage. So when they said to me, you can go Pentonville, I was like, yeah, I'll go Pentonville. What's the catch? He said, you guys are getting split up. So I looked at my codies and I said, you all right with that? And I was like, yeah, cool, because no one wants to be in Belmarsh. But little did I know, because <laughs> I was a Category A prisoner, Pentonville weren't secured to hold Category A prisoners. So they put me on 24-hour banger. Bang-ups, bang-up. But when you're institutionalised, you accept the fact that you ain't getting out of your cell. So after about three days, I've had a scream-up. And because I know the, the, in, the screws are scared of me. The screws are the guards the, in prison. The guards, yeah. They're scared of me. I was always known for attacking screws mm. without any provocation. And if I threatened them, that to take it seriously. So I was always spending a lot of time in segregation, which is the block. They'd emptied a part of the wing. It was called the basic regime. So they've emptied, and there's like eight cells on the basic, and it's got a cage around the basic. So I'm the only person in basic and where the eight cells are. So no one can come in there apart from the security. So the security had to bring me my dinner, security had to bring me my tea, security had to bring me my breakfast. So after about three days, I've gone mad. And I said, listen, this is a liberty you know this is a liberty this is against my human rights you can't do this get the security so which is a security senior officer so he's come i said look i'm not being funny i said but i want a shower right i want to so we can't let you have a shower but we can't let you out i said well i've got to have a phone call my family are fit to bits mate like you need to let me have a phone call i said look let me have a phone call and there won't be any ag i said but if you don't let me have a phone call then there's going to be murders in here mate i'm telling you now i'm telling you now some of your officers are getting hurt i don't care if I can't, well, come on. And I've had a big conversation with them. And then what they've said to me is, yeah, we'll, we'll let you out to use the phone. So what they've done, they've let me out to use the phone. And I'm on the phone, but they've got a semicircle of officers around me on the phone. right? So I can't go anywhere. But there's, I don't know, eight to ten officers around me on the phone. Ironically, they've opened up all the cells to let them out onto the yard for exercise, because it's exercise. They've let me out of the cell at the wrong time, basically. Um, but a couple of people have shouted at me and I've gone to speak to them. And as I've gone to speak to them, the SO said to me, Herbert, if you talk to anyone, you've got to bang up. Finish your phone call or it's bang up. So I said, all right, sweet, go, sweet, not a problem, not a problem. So they let about maybe 20 to 30 people out on the yard. So now I'm thinking, well, I'm banged up, so fuck it. So I've said, yeah, 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 all right, sweet, I right, love you lots. As I put the phone down, I've just run through the screws and I've run onto the exercise yard. At that stage, obviously, everyone in the prison believed I was a hitman. So they all believe I'm a hitman for all these organisations around London. So when I've run on the yard, 
the hitman's on the yard now. So I've said to everyone on the yard, no one go in. So our kids come up to me and said, no, we're having a sit-out today, bruv. I was like, what do you mean? He said, like, we're having a sit-out. We've already planned to have a sit-out, which means nobody's going back in because of the... There was something going on in the prison at that stage where the inmates on the wing wanted to have a sit-out in the yard and have a demand up with so a change a, of... Like a, like a protest. They a were protest, all going to yeah. sit out in the yard and not go back into the cells. Yeah. I, I weren't aware of that, but it happened on this day. That was coincidentally, right? So all of a sudden, that we're on the yard. We're on the yard for 11, 12 hours. And basically what happened during that, a young kid who organised, the kid that organised the protest actually went up to the gate and asked one of the screws to let him in. He'd had enough. And then someone that overheard him and then all the youngsters on the on the yard actually attacked this kid, punctured his lung Ooh. with his ribs and like, he nearly died. He had a heart attack and he rushed into hospital and all that sort of stuff. And then basically they come in with 750 officers from all around England, got... Um, congregated over the 12 hours we was on the yard and then they've all come in at the night time about 11.30 the night like, <laughs> what, with their shields and yeah, 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 and stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. and they've all lined up in front of us and it just so happened that the head of this mufti at the time was I think Jones his name was Jones or Smith I'm not entirely sure he's like 6 foot 7 um, Welsh guy but he was head of security or head of the mufti at Wandsworth. And where I've had so much aggravation and violence and kicks off in Wandsworth over my period of time incarcerating. And he turned up and he said, Herbert, is that you? And I was like, who's that? I, thought, I can't remember if it's Jonesy or Smith. One of the two. I mean, it might have been Jones or something like that. I said, yeah, it's me. He said, what are you doing? I said, peaceful protest. Because all the kids, when they've seen all these screws, they've all sat down. And I actually wanted to have the fight and have it messy, but they've all sat down. Me and a guy called Eddie Ash stood up. So they said, are you coming in? I said, I'm too intimidated. I said, I don't want to get killed. See the kid earlier, he nearly got killed. I'm not coming in. Is this the Welsh guard was saying that? Yeah, me and him were having a conversation. Then me and Eddie are standing there smoking a roll-up. I can't actually remember if it was a roll-up or a joint, but we were smoking. So I've said, uh, Eddie, would you like some of this? So he's had a couple of puffs. And I said, what do you reckon we should do, Ed? Should we go in or stay out? So... I've looked at all the kids who were sitting down and said, are you lot standing up or not? No. All of a sudden, now they're on a peaceful protest. So I just said, you know what? I'm going in there. Do you fancy it? He said, coming in. So I said, yeah, I'm coming in. I was going to finish my snack. So we finished what we were smoking, whether it was a snack or a joint, I can't remember. Um, and then we've walked in, went in front of the governor in the morning and got um, seven days loss of canteen, seven days loss of earnings. And then I got moved out of prison and got put on the high security unit back in Belmarsh. Oof, back, back to Belmarsh. Yeah. I want to ask you about a situation where you were earning a bit of cash and buying the fancy things. Uh, you had a gold watch, I think it was, and someone tried to nick it off you in a club. Oh, that was in the Ministry of Sound. Yeah. Um, basically, that was in 1990. 1990. It was a boulevard, a tank, um, 14 karat gold boulevard. And it was the first ever gold watch I had. I'm actually out of my nut. I don't know how many ecstasies I was on, but I was on so many ecstasies I couldn't even see properly. And uh, I've gone into the toilet. I was in there with a few of my friends, a few ladies, a few men. I've gone to the toilet, I've heard a geezer over my shoulder, say, have you got the time, mate? Grab my arm. As he's grabbed my arm, I thought, what the fuck? I've looked and I've seen his mate like growling, but obviously I used to carry a lot of weapons on me back in the day. So I've got the knife out and as he's pulling my hand, I've just stabbed him a few times up the side and then his mates come running over so I've just stabbed him in the, in the thing and in the face. Anyway, with that, I've come out, come out of the toilet 
I've said to one of the bouncers, I've just had to stab someone up in the toilet. You need to sort that out. The bouncer in front of me got a bit irate and started arguing a little bit. I don't know, might have put his hand on me or done something, so I've stabbed him in the gut a little bit, you know, and then basically um, that was the catalyst for what happened after that. So basically when I've stabbed the bouncer in the gut, I've gone back into the dance floor. I've gone to give the knife back to somebody. He said, I don't want it. Sling it. I don't want that. It's covered in blood. So I just threw it down on the side, got a bottle of water, cleaned my hands up and that sort of thing. And then I think I took my shirt off and borrowed someone else's shirt. And then basically I'm standing, partying, dancing like nothing had happened. And then one of my friends called me and said, Marv, you got a minute? I said, before? He said, oh, Colton wants to speak to you. Now, Colton was the head of security. Um, Colton Leach, he was the guy that they made the uprising of a foot soldier. Colton was like a major player in the ICF, in the city firm, which was West Ham's hooligans. And he was a pretty ferocious individual back in the day. And basically, Colton wanted you. I've been introduced to Colton by some armed robbery friends that took me to the ministry. And uh, I thought we was all one firm at that stage. What I didn't realise was I'd stabbed up one of his staff so he's become very like agit like got the ump. It's like if I was out with a few of my friends and you hurt one of my friends, I don't care who you are. You hurt my friend. Mm -hmm. It's off. So when he's heard that Marvin's not only stabbed a couple of people in the toilets, he stabbed one of your bouncers. I've been disrespectful in his from his perspective. I've been disrespectful. So he's going get that little shit. Bring him out here. I want to do it. So they said, "Can't want to see." I said, "For what?" He said, "He needs to speak to you about saying, mate." I can't remember exactly what enticed me into going. So I said, all right, I'll be out in a minute. So with that, I've walked out, walked down, I've opened the two doors of the ministry at the end, the exit, and then Colin standing there, he's just hit me, bang! But I don't know if you've ever been hit and you get a white flash. Have you ever been punched and you get a white flash? Years ago. Right, so I've been here and I've got a white flash. I've looked in his hand and he's standing there with an axe and I was like, that's what that scar is there. He's hit you in the face with an axe? Yeah. Yeah, and he, like, if you look... Yeah, I can see right, it. So he goes it's from my amazing. forehead down to my nose, right? So as he's hit me, I was like, did you just hit me with that? And then bang, he's hit me with it again. But now I'm thinking, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. So it's just kicked off. So I'm, I've steamed into Colton. Another one of his mates, Dave, was there. So I've steamed into Dave as well. Now I'm thinking, like, I'm getting it with stuff because there's four or five bouncers. I'm getting it with stuff. But I've got... I had a two-shot Derringer, which was a, a, a small firearm. It was a 22 calibre with dumb, dumb bullets in it. So it was only two shots, but I tried to get that out. And that scar on my finger there was where I got hit. I don't know what it was I got hit with, but I split my hand open and I dropped the gun. And then I've got a, a, a knife on me. So I've tried to get another knife out. No, a spring-loaded kosh. What's a spring-loaded kosh? Like, you know what this police get, when you see the people and they go... Oh, like a big long whip thing. Yeah, but it wasn't, back in the day, they used to be bendy and swinging, yeah. right? So I pulled one of them out. That got knocked out of my hand. I had a can of CS gas. I've tried to get that out. Colton said the I was CS like... CS gas, was, is it like pepper spray? Pepper spray, yeah, right, pepper yeah. spray. So I've tried to get that out. I've tried to get it. And I'm fighting, fighting. And every couple of seconds, I'm trying to pull a different weapon out. But because there was so many people hitting me, I just couldn't get the use of any weapon. But we're fighting, we're fighting. I'm headbutting, I'm kicking, I'm fighting. And because I was high buzzing drunk, ecstasied up, cocaine up, full of adrenaline, I kept going and going and going. And because I could fight and I was pretty fit anyway, um, they all became tired. So then basically one of them, one of them's come up behind me and grabbed me around the arms. One of them grabbed my legs and then they've just picked me up, run me out and threw me out the door, shut the door. 
the back door. They've run me through the nightclub, got to the fire exit and threw me out the fire exit. But it's daytime when, because it's like early morning, so it's daytime now. So as they threw me out, I've gone outside, I'm covered in blood. We had a very deep code and you can't get no one nicked no matter what. You can't be a grass. So, because I'm covered in blood, I thought, now nah, you're going to get people nicked. You've got to go. With that, I've turned around to go and the guy's pulled up. I don't know him even to this day. So, the, I don't know who it was, but he's pulled up. Oi, mate, oi, mate, do you want to lift? Do you want to lift? So, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at home, I had a 410 shotgun and a 32 revolver. So, my intentions was to go home, get the 410, the 32 revolver, come back and shoot them. Colton and whoever it was on the door. So basically I've gone, as he pulled up outside, I said, wait here, mate, I'll be back down in a minute. So I've run upstairs, got the guns, come back downstairs, the driver weren't there. So I thought, fuck, what am I going to do? So I've run back upstairs, I rung somebody, or was it the phone in the house? I can't remember, but I remember I rung someone and said, listen, Colton and them lot have just chopped me up, mate. Fucking Libby, I can't suffer this. I can't suffer, it's not happening. So I'm on the phone screaming and shouting. I said, right, fuck, 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 these cunts have got to go. I'm not having it, I'm not having it. And then the missus has woke up and she's just gone hysterical. And I'm like, what the fuck's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? She said, have you seen your face? Have you seen your face? Like I'd actually looked at myself. So she said, look at ya, ah, screaming and shouting, ah. So I've gone in the bathroom and had a look and obviously that was open, about that wide. And my head was open, like right back there. It just looked like you could see my skull. So you had a gaping hole. Yeah, proper gaping hole. Yeah. I had a couple of stab wounds around my side. My hands were swollen up. My hand was gashed. I ended up going to the hospital. I remember getting all the the plastic stitches. I went home. I rung Junior McDonough. Um, he come over with a big Bessie, which was a nickname for the pump action. He had a pump action, and we went around looking for the guys. Did that you find them? Up. No, they sort of disappeared. It was a. It was. A, it, was, a, it, was a, it went ongoing for a couple of months. How did you resolve it in the end? It never actually got resolved. I ended up getting nicked of about a year later for an armed robbery. Right. And I ended up going to prison. It got resolved later in life, to be quite fair. I've gone to Marbella. I'm living in Marbella. I've made a reputation in Marbella. I'm doing what I'm doing. What's your reputation in Marbella? It was pretty much the same as England. I was just wild and fearless. I met a few people that were dealing in tons of drugs. Tons of cocaine? No, no. Tons of Tons of cannabis. Because um, that's how I sort of got into the gaming. That's how I made a reputation in Spain initially. I'm having it with a guy who was dealing with half a ton, quarter a ton, tons, two tons, five tons. And basically, I started working with this guy. And because I was so fearless, I worked on my own. So I never needed a gang. I just worked. If I liked you, I, I liked you. So I'd support you. And I'd carry a gun. And I went everywhere I went. And I'd done everything I was prepared to do. How did you get yourself into a situation where you got shot? five times I used to collect money for people and basically when they was having debts that they couldn't be recovered there was only one situation I went into where the money never got paid but I got offered £75,000 to walk away and I said I'll come back to you on that one then I've gone back to the person who was owed the money and said look you ain't getting paid they don't like you but they've offered me £75,000 to walk away so I'll either take the money and give it to you We'll have a carve up of that, or I'm going to walk away. And he said, I want all of it. I said, Well, get it yourself then. And left him. But up until that, I'd never been, I'd never not recovered. I met a young, well, not a young guy, he was an older guy than me. He's, his dad was in the game doing bits and pieces. I put a lot of trust and belief into this kid. And then um, 
basically I'm nicking loads of money, doing loads of things and I'm giving him a drink. But what I'm noticing with this kid was that he's never spending money. So we would go out, so we'd have a party, you'd go to the beach bar and you'd have a drink, few bottles of drink, few bottles of champagne, bottles of vodka, loads of birds, your bird, loads of birds, paying for food. You get the bill at the end of the day. You get the bill at the end of the day and then it'd be between 2,000 to 5,000 pounds for the day's sort of uh, activities. But every time the bill come, he was never around. That went on for a little while and I got to the stage where I just said to him, mate, I don't want you around me no more. I think you're a little scumbag and I don't want you around me spending my money. I don't mind making money with you, but when I'm spending it, I don't want you with me. We split up, stopped having it with each other. And I don't know why, but prior to that happening, we went to my friend's house who had a load of watches. We used to get watches at a discount from the main retailers. Well, he did anyway. So I used to be able to get watches at half price or just over half price for the brand new watches. He asked me if I wanted a couple of new APs and I was like, no, I'm all right, I'm sweet. So the driver said, can I have that um, Ferrari special edition Panerai it was? And my pal said, is he all right? I said, yeah, give it to him, sweet, not a problem. So then when he's had the watch, a couple of months later, me and him have fell out. But then my mate who's giving the watch has rung me up and said, are you going to pay for this watch? I was like, what do you mean? He said, going to pay for the watch? I said, what watch? He said, the watch your mate took. I said, ain't he paid for that yet? Because he's had maybe 40 to 60 to 80,000 pounds off of me over the space of the time. And he said, nah. So I was very explosive back then. So when I heard that, I thought that fucking liberty taking shit. Right, I rang him up. I said, see you, you fat mug. I said, if you don't go and pay for that watch, I'm going to punch your fucking head in. I'm telling you, go and pay for the watch. I'm going to come down where you are. I'm going to smash your face in. I was a certain part type of person. If I smashed your face in, you can keep the watch. So my intention was, I'm going to smash your face and you can keep the watch. But go and pay for that watch. I'm going to smash your head in. And he went, what are you being a bully for? What's he got to do with you? I was like, what the fuck are you talking about, you cheeky C-U-N-T, right? So I'm going crazy with this guy. Anyway, I thought, right, where are you? Where are you? I'm down Porto Benoos. I said, right, I'm coming. So I've gone to my car, give my nephew my gun. I said, take that, I'll be back in a minute. Because he didn't really take firearms into the port. So I've gone down there. He weren't there. His mate's sitting there talking. With, and I went up to him. I said, look, do you know the strength of this fucking mug? This is what's happened. Crash by Monarch, crash by Monarch. He said, look, go home. And I'll bring him down to the gym tomorrow. I said, no, fuck that. If he's going to get a tool. Now, at that stage, I actually believed he went to get a bat or a knife or something. Because he weren't the type of geezer to be a gunman. Because we've been in situations where gunplay was uh, active and he never got involved. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've done things with guns and... He's sat in the car. Do you know what I'm saying? So I didn't think he was a gunman. What type of things would you do with guns? Would you shoot people? Well, it'd been alleged that people had been shot and people had been slapped about and people had been pistol whipped and things like that. Do you know what I mean? Because it's more the threat of violence in that world that gets you the best results. Once you shoot somebody, then the money's gone. It's over. You, you can't shoot someone and demand money off them. Do you know what I mean? So, so he wasn't a gunman? No, he wasn't. He wasn't a gunman. So basically because of that... I didn't believe he'd come back with a gun. I actually thought he was going to come back with a, a sword, a bat or a weapon. And I thought, that ain't a problem. I'll take it off him and smash his fucking head in. So when he's come back, he's walked up and I've seen him. I said, right, come on then, silly bollocks. Let's get up to the top of the road where there's no public. There's no cameras. There's no people. And he pulled his side up like that. And I just see the gun. I was like, what the fuck are you going to do with that? I never thought he'd pull it out and shoot me. So when he's pulled it out, I've tried to get to the gun to take it off him. Do you know what I mean? Because 
once you grab the barrel, they can't, it'll, it'll bang and it might backfire on him, but the bullet ain't going to come out because the things need to happen with guns for them to, for the bullet to come out. So anyway, I know once I grab the, the, the gun, I can take it off him, but then he shot me in my leg. Right, so I'll show you the x-rays. I'll send you the x-rays so you can put it up. So the, but he's, he shot me the first one, it's gone in my leg, it just shattered my whole leg. It just blew my leg into smithereens and I've hit the deck straight away. So then obviously I'm fuming, screaming, you fucking animal, do your job. Do your fucking job. Not thinking he'd have the arsehole to kill me, thinking he would, he'd shit himself and walk off. But he's just sort of hesitated for a couple of seconds and he must have thought to himself, fuck, I've got to kill him now. Retrospectively, that's what most probably happened. Then he's shot me again and he went down my willy, shot my testicle into my pants. And then I've gone back and I've tried to get up. As I've tried to get up, he shot me through my arm. He went, because he was in front of me there, shot me through the arm, bounced off the floor, went through my pelvis, shattered my pelvis and then shattered my two bottom vertebrae, eight and nine at the bottom of my back and exited my back at the bottom. And then I've sort of fell back down and I was thinking he's going to walk off. So as I've opened my eyes, I see him walking towards me and I thought, fuck. Fucker's gonna kill me. And I've got back up. And I'm sort of as he's coming. I just I was gonna say something. Saying says to me, don't say nothing. So I just sort of looked at the floor. As I've looked at the floor, I felt bang, and I've gone back, bang, fuck. And I've looked up to see what he's doing. And as I've come forward, he's just put the gun like that and shot me straight in the eye. And that was point blank range. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Um, and then bang, I thought I was dead. My head's gone back. I've hit the floor. I thought, oh my God, I'm dead. And I've heard, Marv, is that you? And I obviously, instantly I thought, I'm in heaven or hell, wherever. And I thought, fuck up, dead. And as I've opened my eyes, it was my mate from the gym. So I'm like, fuck, get to my car, get to my car, get, get my phone, get this, get that. So he's gone to my car, got my phone. I'm thinking now, Andy McNabb, Bravo 20. Mm, I read the book in prison. Book. Right. So when he says in the book about getting gun wounds, get the heart rate down, just breathe. So I'm breathing, keep trying to get my heart rate down. Obviously I made a phone call, made a few phone calls to the people I know to let them know exactly what's happened because where we come from, everything has retaliation. So as long as he gets killed, I don't mind dying. Do you know what I'm saying? So that was the mindset I had when I was insane. So I had to tell someone exactly who it was. Do you know what I mean? So I've rung my closest friends and said, listen, Fucking cunt shot me, mate. He's done me. He's done me. Who? Brother, I told him who it was who's done me. And I've rung the missus, trying to let her know. Uh, Charles rung a couple of people, told them what happened. And the next thing, I was all right, feeling all right. Um, and then the police turned up. They've rung an ambulance, because I rung the ambulance first, and they didn't believe me. I've rung the ambulance. And I said, oh, a helicopter sanitarius. It's like a private helicopter company, that's an ambulance service. So I rung them up. I said, look, I've just been shot. I said, where are you? I said, Port Benoos. They said, what happened? I said, I've been shot in the face. I've been, and they hung up. Whoa. And then I rung them back again. I said, no, seriously, I've been shot. I've been shot about five times. And they hung up again. And then the police turned up. The police rung them. That's when they sent the, um, the ambulance. And the ambulance turned up. And the only thing that hurt me, really, was when they moved me to put me on the stretcher. My leg was, oh. I still, like, it was so horrible. And then basically, I just remember saying to the doctor, I don't care what it costs, save my leg. Do not take my leg. Because when I've looked at my leg, it just 
when I because as he shot me, I've just collapsed. So where's the because when you see the the, the X ray, you'll see because there was so many fragments of bone, and it was just like my leg was in a funny position. It just looked just compressed. No, it just, my, my ankle was up and it like it was just uh. it just didn't look normal. Do you know what I mean? It just didn't look normal. Like my because there was no bone in my between my hip and my femur, and it had been squashed. My hip, my my, my heel was up in the air, and it just didn't look real. Do you know what I mean? And I was just, oh, I'm going to lose my leg. I'm going to lose my leg. So I said to the doctor, please, whatever it takes, I'll pay. I don't care. Please don't take my leg. So when I woke up in the morning and I showed a picture, when I woke up in the morning, I wiggled my toes. I thought, oh, I can feel my toes wiggling. And that's why the photo of me in the hospital bed was me smiling was because that was when I said, you need to take a picture of this. Do you know what I mean? Because I could feel my toes. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to walk again. Do you know what I'm saying, Joe? And that's when, after that is when the, the doctors told me I'm never going to walk again. It's never going to get better. And that's when I went on my, uh, my journey to a perfect diet. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We've talked about how you got at why you got out of organized crime. Um, we've talked about how you got into it. Let's talk about how you got to number 10 Downing Street. The the home of the UK Prime Minister. What? Where, where does that? How does that work? Well, the only analogy I can use that people can relate to is when you drink yourself sober, right? Okay. Right. So I insaned myself back to normality, right? So I was insane. I lived twenty four seven in my limbic system. So what people think about doing is what I done forever. To the point where I realised, and I'm going to plug it because I don't stop plugging it, but The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters. Right? Seriously, uh, until I read that book, I never even knew myself. I never knew myself. And I read this book, and I never read it, I listened to it. because so I can't read and take information in because of a learning difficulty I have. So I listened to this book and I just realised I've been hijacked by my chimp my whole life. I'd been hijacked by my limbic system my whole life. So then I stopped applying my limbic system. So you know when you think, I want to fucking smash his face in, but you don't say nothing. You just think mm. it. 
And that voice in your head says, smash him in the face. And then your frontal lobe says, do you know what? It don't make sense. Mm. This will happen and that will happen. So your, your frontal lobe and your limbic system are in constant conflict every day. Right. And then it goes to your parietal for information source. Right. So when you go back to your parietal, you'll say, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to end up in prison. My brain never worked like that. We're going back to prison because in prison I'm making money. Fuck it, they're not doing it. Fuck it, we're doing it. Like, you got a problem with me? We're going to have a fucking problem. You got an issue with me? It's going to be fucking dealt with yeah. by any means necessary. And that was my limbic system constantly. And I didn't understand it. I believed it. After the epiphany with my son's friend, I gave up on the criminal fraternity. I said, I'm not doing it no more. So then I had to think, what am I going to do to survive? So a friend of mine come to me. Um, introduced me to um, Bobby Cummins, OBE. Bobby Cummins, OBE, is a man who's done a lot of reform work within the British um, culture, um, changed a lot of laws in society so criminals now can get bank accounts, criminals now can get insurance, criminals now can be looked at in a different perspective. Um, he had a comp a, an organisation called Unlock, and he was connected to a friend of mine who was doing really, really well with an organisation um, he asked me to do a couple of public speeches to go in because after what happened with my son's friend, I realised that I can't do it no more. Mm. I'm not going to be a groomer. I've just been grooming people for years for my own benefit. Mm. Although I was only saving my money, you're risking your liberty. You're saving my money, but you're going to prison if you get caught. People will want to rob you and shoot you and mm. stab you to get that product. So I weren't doing nothing better nothing more than a normal groomer. Although it was a different product, I wasn't using sex, I was using drugs, guns and violence. It's the same principle as a groomer. So, so you're never... grooming young kids to go and commit violent crime, sell drugs, do crime essentially. Yeah. That's what you mean by groomer. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what, I, I couldn't do it no more. So basically what I started doing was giving speeches to kids saying, don't get to my level, because getting to my level just means you've got to go to prison forever. You all get stabbed. I've been stabbed 23 times. I've been stabbed in my heart. I've been stabbed in my brain. I've been stabbed in my throat. I've been stabbed everywhere. I've been stabbed in my arms. I've been stabbed in my legs. I've been shot five times. I've lost my eye. Look. Bang. Oh, my goodness. Do you understand what I'm saying, Chad? He's popping him out. As a, right? So, boom. Is that hurt? No, don't you get used to it. So, what I'm saying to kids, yeah? This is the top level. The only difference between me and every other cartel is they've got bodies to throw in front of their bullets. They got bodies to throw in front of their sentences. So unless you're going to be a groomer and use people, then you're going to have to get stabbed and shot. And it's as simple as that. And if you don't want to get stabbed and shot, you're, going to, you're not going to make it to the top. And when you make it to the top, all you're going to do is accumulate debt because there's never no win. There's never no win. There's a turnover which doesn't belong to you. So it sounds enticing, 109 million pounds a year. Like, what the hell? Where's the profit in that? The reality of crime, the reality of crime, unless you're the, the British Empire, yeah, you can't live forever. You can't do it. Normal criminals off the street, no, you can't. That's why they die in prison. I don't know any successful gangsters that have retired wealthy. Not one. I don't know one. And I don't mean just retiring wealthy. I mean retiring happy. You can't even retire, can you? You can't retire. How can mm. you retire, really? You've got to give up. But to give up, then you got to change your ways and you got to give back. And to give back, you become a victim, you know? So you're never free. You've always got to live and dance between raindrops. You're never accepted in society as a, as a decent human being. 
you know what I'm saying? So like, if you make it to the media and they plaster you all over the media, then you'll never got a chance in hell. Do you feel like you're accepted into society now? I made it to Downing Street. I got cleared to walk through the door. So that bit where they invited you to Downing Street, was that because of the speaking that you were doing? With that was because I worked with um, Dr. Mark Prince OBE. And Dr. Mark Prince OBE asked me to come down and do a workshop with him with a few kids from North London. On the workshop was a representative from um, Downing Street who watched me and saw me engage with the youngsters. And he said to me in, I think it was six or nine weeks, I've been seeing these kids. He said, I've never seen them sit down for longer than 10 minutes. He said, they was totally engaged with you for over an hour and a half. How did you do it? I thought what you done was amazing. And they listened to every word you said. I said, that's all I do. And then basically the next day, Dr. Mark Prince rang me up. He said, get your glad rags on. You're going to Downing Street. I was like, piss off. <laughs> he said, you're going to that? I said, mate, there's no random million years. Five years prior to that, well, four, three years prior to that, I was nicked for four murders because I got extradited from Spain to England for four murders. Do you understand? Like, and They tried to pin like 19 murders on you. Yeah, but that was in overall. 2000. That was in 2000. That was in 2002. Yeah. In 2012, I was part of a conspiracy for two gangland figures being assassinated in Manchester and then two police officers killed. And then hand grenaded by a guy called Dale Cregan. And I was Mr. Big in that case. So when you research Mr. Big, it was from that case, Dale Cregan. And they said that I harboured him, I financed him, and I supported him to do his crimes and to get away with his crimes and then to elude capture. And then because of that, they tried to arrest me. I proved on that case because prior to that, we started a boxing organisation in Spain, which went on to become one of the biggest boxing organisations in the world. And at the beginning of that, I was working with all the underprivileged kids in Spain. I was getting them off the streets and into boxing. I was mentoring them in the ring, mentoring them in school, and mentoring them into a better life. And then basically when I got arrested for that Dale Quigan case, I come back to England. And then when I got exonerated of the trial on the case, it was either go back to Spain and pick up where I left off. And because the organisation had taken on new management, and it was 100% different people running it, I didn't feel it was a home anymore. Mm. And what am I going to do? If I go back to Spain and I haven't got that gym facility to work in and build, then I'm only going to get involved in crime again. So let me just stay in England and see what I can do with this intervention stuff. And I met Bobby Cummings, another good friend of mine, and then basically just grew in that industry. Got to do the intervention work with the youngsters. I got CBR checked. CBS checked and got authorised to work in schools. Done a few workshops in a few schools. I turned some of the naughtiest kids in London into the most harmonious children in their school that went on to achieve great um, qualifications and leave school with certain attributes. And then started working with the street kids in community centres. Um, and then I got invited to Downing Street and then got applauded for the work I'd done over the last three to four years and haven't looked back since. And that's all I do now. I just finished, I was in Liverpool last week working with the Shrewsbury Youth Centre, doing a workshop with them guys. I'll be working very closely with them in the next couple of years. Um, I go into prisons, young offenders and adult prisons, doing motivational speaking, giving people the opportunity to exit crime through football, boxing, media and mentoring. Also 
um, scaffolding and roofing. I feel like this is a positive and good place to finish the interview. Yeah, well, you know, this is just a positive and influential journey. My my aim and goal is to develop multi-millionaires and multi-billionaires who own their own companies that never have to risk their liberty, never have to fight and never have to go to prison. Well, best of luck with that, Marvin. And thank it's you. not luck we need. It's hard work, determination and commitment. I was going to say best of luck with that as well, but that wouldn't make sense. But, you know, genuinely best of luck moving forward and thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for listening. If you like this episode, the best thing you can do to thank Marvin and I is to leave a review or even better, share it on social media and you've got some social media channels, don't you Marvin? Herbert.Marvin on Instagram, Marvin Herbert on YouTube and the Marvin Herbert Limited is my company which is designed to help generate future millionaires and billionaires. So send me a message on Marvin at the Marvin Brilliant. Thank you.